Hello and welcome to another episode of ESG Voices. This podcast series addresses the opportunities and challenges within environmental, social and governance, ESG, through interviews with ESG specialists from KPMG and beyond. Throughout this series, we will discuss a broad range of environmental, social and governance issues, aiming to support governments, businesses and communities in creating an equitable and prosperous future for all. For the next few episodes, we will focus on key themes coming out of COP27. And today, I'm joined by an impressive panel of young climate and sustainability leaders for a discussion that couldn't be more timely. With the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC, dedicating a full day at COP27 to the theme of future generations. Let's kick things off with Avery Johnston, who is a Climate Risk and Strategy Associate at KPMG in the UK. Avery, tell us about your role at this year's event in Egypt and how has the focus on climate change evolved over the last few COPs? Well, my my role this year at COP is as KPMG's kind of youth envoy. So going to COP27 to bring a youth perspective within the context of our business and within the context of the wider kind of climate conversation. So within that, I'm going to be acting as a kind of on the ground, almost live journalist, if you will, sharing back and forth between the wider KPMG community and what's happening on the ground at COP, our learnings, our updates, our reactions and reflections, and and those of many of the partners that we'll be working with and and who will be there with us. So it should be a really exciting time um, to really build upon the kind of agenda that we had at COP26 in terms of youth engagement to to really see that come to life in terms of our engagement at COP27 in, in Egypt this year. The focus on climate and ESG has evolved so much over the last few COPs. I mean, we've seen the policy evolve so dramatically due to kind of regulatory pressure, business pressure, and consumer and activism demand, really. Even if we look at what's happened since COP26 last year, I have really high hopes, I would say, for COP27 to to be a really exciting time to drive this kind of policy forward, but equally for business to really demonstrate its progress since kind of the big commitments that were made at COP26 last year. We saw business come out in such strong force at COP26 in Glasgow, and I want to see, or I'm excited to see, hopefully, um, them really demonstrate that progress and, and be able to have kind of tangible metrics and targets that they've been meeting since since then. So we'll see how that kind of evolves, but it's definitely snowballed, and I hope that it will kind of continue to do that over, over COP27 and, and beyond. And Avery, what do you hope that this upcoming day-long spotlight on youth and future generations can particularly demonstrate? My perspective on youth and youth engagement when it comes to climate action, really, and climate risk and opportunity, is really looking at young people as experts in their own rights. I fundamentally think that we've gotten to a point where young people have been engaged in the climate conversation, so they should be, in this deeply kind of almost tokenized way in in some ways where young people are invited to speak on panels and and contribute, but it's not necessarily in the most holistic or, or kind of inviting way. So I hope that we're able to get to a point with with youth engagement this year where policymakers, business leaders, you know, NGOs alike can see young people and their expertise for actual expertise rather than just to kind of tick a box of having a young person speak. So I think young people are often portrayed as experts in kind of community organizing 
and in, in activism. And I think such a big part of the climate movement is obviously due to that kind of widespread activism in, in the climate space. We see it on TV. We see, you know, our communities. We see people skipping school on Fridays, you know, in, in peaceful protest and, and rightfully so and as they should. But I think it's time for the business community to also lean into their young people, their junior talent, their junior policymakers, and, and really start to collaborate more holistically with young people. So I hope that this COP will kind of bridge that that gap of, of young people not just being activists, but young people really being, you know, business and, and policy leaders themselves. Thanks, Avery. And what are you hearing about how countries can engage young people and elevate their voices on climate and public health? What has inspired you most? What has inspired me the most from a kind of political perspective with countries that are engaging young people is firstly that our COP27 youth, you know, youth envoy herself from the UNFCCC is a doctor. Um, her name is Omnia. She's an amazing, you know, Egyptian woman who is studying studying medicine and practicing medicine. And I think that that really has created such an amazing statement for the intersection of public health and, and climate. We know that as climate change and, and the impacts of climate change are exacerbated, as will public health challenges, everything ranging from you know, pollution in, in inner city communities to, to widespread pandemics and, and obviously the very dramatic impacts of on health that, that natural disasters and, and climate-related disasters have. And so to have someone in the medical community not only represent the medical community in the kind of public health space, but also young young people and also, you know, be a woman, I think is a really, you know, exciting time. The the intersection of climate and public health is so fascinating in, in the sense that it's not necessarily one of the key or core themes of COP27 itself, but is woven into so many of the different kind of adaptation and mitigation conversations that we that we're having. You know, I'll take another another really good friend of mine as an example. Daphne Frias is is a, an amazing activist based in New York. She's a wheelchair user and, and, and climate activist. And her kind of work and really looking at the climate justice movement from the perspective of, of ability and disability is so interesting in how we start to think about, you know, what are we doing to really combat climate change? Is it large businesses starting to implement lids to, to cold drinks that no longer use straws? That's one solution. But does that solution really cater to, you know, the masses or cater to a marginalized group like the disability community who deeply rely on straws for accessibility to, to those sorts of beverages? So she's such an interesting person who, who really draws on those kinds of nuances to, you know, to really unpack our climate solutions are not going to be one size fits all. And the health needs of a community, you know, her community, for example, the disability community, the needs of a community who's just faced natural disaster, the needs of, you know, women who are displaced because of climate migration are all going to be so different that I think this conversation is so pertinent as we continue to ideate climate solutions to really ensure that public health and, and the health of all people is central to it. Thanks, Avery. Eileen Silver-Tetlow is a manager of corporate sustainability at KPMG in the US. Eileen, the global stage is having quite the debate on climate, including some differing opinions on whether some factors can help or harm our economy and environment. Let's take a step back. How far have we come on climate versus, say, five years ago? 
Do you see any particular distinctions in the climate debate in the US versus elsewhere? Or are we seeing largely some of the same dynamics? Firstly, I'd like to say I think we've come a long way in the climate debate. Climate change is now really part of the business vernacular. And there's increased pressure for organisations to engage in ESG activities, to be transparent with their organisational journeys. Both stakeholders and consumers are pushing the climate change and ESG conversation. And of course, we have a long way to go in in a relatively short period of time. But so far, we've made a great deal of progress in the past five years. And what we're seeing is really, we know that in Europe, the ESG rules and regulations are far more prescriptive and the US is still earlier on that journey. So we've got we've got a while to go still. Martin Sebastian Abel, manager KPMG in Germany and part of KPMG's ESG EMA hub. Martin Sebastian, we know the expectations of corporations and businesses on reporting and ambitions are higher than ever. What could they stand to learn from younger generations in setting these commitments so they are viewed as authentic, aspirational and achievable? So at first we see like this tremendous progress, sustainability reporting, climate pledges um, have increased rapidly. And there's also a change from PR language, CSR reports, where companies write about staff or events that contribute to society or the environment, which is fine. But uh, there's a shift to real integrated ESG reports that are also based on ESG strategies. And especially for public listed companies around the world, there is drastic change in regulations and they face pressure not only from the young generation, but also investors. And yes, this is a huge success from climate activists um, and also the number of sustainability reports and climate pledges is increased, but at the same time, uh, emissions are rising. And uh, we look at the scenarios, we see no clear commitments, no downward paths. Uh, We are still running too hot in terms of climate. I think there's a recent study out there that we are on the path towards uh, three degree, which is not good. So there is widespread frustration over the status quo and the greenwashing attempts are widely criticized and uh, companies could learn from the younger generation by focusing on purpose. And uh, we at KPMG also advising companies to go through a rigorous approach with ESG data, just as financial data, and also report on their uh, due diligence policies, processes, and management systems. Anything else shouldn't be out there. Ananya Ayer is Associate Consultant, Climate Change and ESG Advisory at KPMG in India. Ananya, turning to you, could you share your thoughts on climate change in an emerging economic power such as India? So I think In a lot of developed countries like the U.S., ESG challenges the way these countries have developed and it goes against this conventional form of development. Whereas in a developing country like India, this isn't the case. And ESG principles and ESG action presents more as an opportunity for sustainable, inclusive development. And in developing countries such as India, there has been a notion that there are other developmental priorities that conflict with climate action, which I would say is more of the debate here. But I think over the past few years, there's been an increasing awareness that all of these are intrinsically linked. And like the importance of just transitions, I think, has come about more and more where you can't address any other developmental priorities without climate integrating into it. 
And in India, for example, we're heavily dependent on coal and we had coal shortages earlier this year, which impacted a lot of operations. And I think events like that have highlighted the importance of transitioning to more renewable sources and, you know, making all this more sustainable overall. Uh, my manager told me that when the climate and ESG practice started in India at KPMG more than a decade ago, we had to reach out to companies and we had to tell them why this was important. But now, you know, in 10 plus years, this has completely changed. And we have even very small companies in their Series A, Series B rounds of funding reaching out to us to help develop an ESG strategy, be it for investors, for regulators. And it's increasingly gaining prominence where it's not just a side policy in a company anymore, but a core part of how companies are operating. I wanted to open a couple of questions for all of you to jump in on, starting with how you see the role of young people evolving over the next five or ten years. I see the role of young people evolving in the next five to ten years in really, you know, astronomical ways. In five to ten years, there is such a large population that is in high school right now who are teenagers, who are, you know, in in secondary school, who will be able to vote and I think that that is a really, really exciting time politically and, and democratically to be able to say there's such all of the people, the young people who are, say, 14 to you know 20 years old right now, in five years, they will all be able to contribute to deciding the policies that are going to you know impact our future. And we know that these same young people are deeply engaged in the climate climate movement, their awareness of it through social media, through platforms like Instagram and TikTok and, you know, even their friendship groups are are so deeply ingrained in, in this kind of activism that it'll be really exciting to see what they can do. And more, you know, more than just the kind of political opportunity that they that they pose, they also will be joining the workforce you know, whether they're going to uni. I mean, even in 10 years, young people now will still be in the workforce or or joining it. And the kind of impact and, and the expectations that they have on large business to do purposeful work, I think is really exciting. We see that retention rates are are dropping for organizations who don't have strong ESG targets. I've been told by a number of people within our own organization that when they go to recruiting events, people, you know, young people, uni students and and school leavers are consistently asking about our ESG targets, what we're doing, what we're doing on sustainability and how that's going to impact their role. Those questions are being asked across service lines. So how that's going to impact their role in HR, how that's going to impact their role in audit, how that's going to impact their role in finance. So it's not just siloed to teams like mine who sit within climate risk and strategy, but young people across, you know, interests, across skill sets, across geographies are really deeply engaged. I would say equally excited and equally probably anxious. I mean, I certainly can speak for myself that there's a a sense of climate anxiety for, for me. So to have an opportunity to be able to contribute in a really meaningful way for businesses that have a deep sense of purpose, I think is both a really exciting time, but also going to be an, an increasing expectation. Yeah, I, I really think that young people are crucial to the ongoing achievement of our ESG goals and objectives through climate change and other components of ESG. We need to tap into that energy by providing the skills to really equip the next generation with the tools to continue working towards our collective goals and ambitions. And really, these young people are the future leaders and drivers of change, and we'll likely see that transpire within the next five to 10 years. I think in 
the past few years, we've definitely seen the youth play a very important role with advocacy and highlighting the urgency of climate action. And in the coming years, it's the same group that's going to become decision makers in governments, in corporations, in developmental organizations, and so many others, and will be the core force of driving capital. And additionally, in developing countries like India, there's increased social mobility and the consumer base that is more aware about sustainability, more willing to pay the premium for sustainably produced, sustainably sourced goods, that's only set to increase. And I think, again, the demand, the capital, that's all going to be coming from the this generation. And I've definitely seen in India, for example, there's already many companies and startups that are catering to this group. And I think that's something we're definitely going to see in many places around the world as well. What will continue to be a challenge and how can companies and organisations best use their resources, expertise and global reach to help wider communities? There are many framework standards uh, in the sustainability universe that developed um, not only through government initiatives, but also due to um, pressure from shareholders, from civil society. And there are many frameworks and standards companies could use to increase their positive contribution, for example, to the towards the um, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and many risk-focused standards and uh, frameworks that are out there are also base, uh, facing a huge emphasis on, on water risk areas and uh, on very dry regions in the world. So companies should apply these standards, and uh, these standards always come with KPIs that will help organizations to really measure the right thing, the right outcome, and also implement these KPIs in their business strategy. Well, there will be so many challenges. <laughs> the question's a bit challenging to, to answer in and of itself. I think one of the things that businesses can really do to contribute to this and, and best use their resources and expertise is really to contribute to the upskilling of organizations, you know, their own organizations or or their own communities to be able to contribute to a green transition. So that means everything from, you know, looking at the workforce that's in our current, you know, extractive workforce, whether that's oil and gas, metals and mining, or other kind of high emitting industries, how can we best support those industries to transition to, to green energy, for example? How can organizations, you know, support the communities that have so deeply relied on these kind of extractive means for their livelihoods transition to to other sources of of income and, and stability? And I think that that's where business has a real almost duty in a way or, or obligation that we've as a society invested so much in oil and gas and, and metals and mining and all of those, you know, various industries that are the fabric of our society relies on um, and our transport relies on and our food systems rely on and, and all of that. How do we move that into a greener future without leaving communities behind? And I think that that's a really key piece of not just a just transition as is, it was originally defined in the kind of labor movement, but equally, how do we do this in a way that's gender just, in a way that looks at racial justice, in a way that looks at, you know, engaging young people and, and people from marginalized communities? How do we look at social mobility in that sense to be able to upskill and engage, you know, lower income communities in, in this opportunity? As much as climate is a risk, 
it is equally an opportunity to to engage more people and, and be able to really lift us out of this current trajectory that we're on towards four degrees and, and four degrees of you know disaster to the livelihoods that that we lead. So I think business has a really strong case from an opportunity perspective to really reach a wider group of people and and bring them along on this journey. I think something that definitely is a challenge today and will continue to be a challenge is the way future generations and future returns are valued in economic analysis. For example, there is a lot of capex that is required with any sort of climate action and just transitions. And these do have high returns, but far into the future. And when, you know, a positive discount rate is used, the future benefits are valued a lot lesser than the present costs are. And this is the same issue with future risks that, you know, climate change would pose. So that, I think, is quite a big challenge and something that definitely a lot of our economic analysis would have to rework to, you know, have a negative discount rate and have a way to actually account for these risks and benefits in a more substantial manner. And additionally, despite of addressing climate change, things do need to be done in a phased manner. And like, for example, in Sri Lanka, we saw that when they switched to more organic agriculture, that drastically decreased yield, and that's not feasible as well. And although things need to be done in a phased manner, there isn't enough time for the trial and error, which I think can be an issue. And on that note, you know, it's the most vulnerable communities at the forefront of climate change as well will addressing their vulnerability and the risks they face would definitely be a challenge. And even though we're seeing technologies coming about and technology that can help in a net zero transition, deploying that technology and building the enabling conditions in these vulnerable communities is definitely something that will be a challenge, but an important one to address to for a meaningful transition. Yeah, I think the challenge is as urgent as corporate sustainability is and climate change. It's also a relatively nascent field, given the breadth of skills required to meet the commitments for a sustainable future. And largely, the supply of ESG professionals is not yet in line with the demand. So companies need to leverage their resources in upskilling their employees and supporting and amplifying local community initiatives. How can a more diverse and gender inclusive community of leaders help us evolve sustainable investing and goals? Well, this is my favourite question because this is what the bulk of my research focuses on. The intersection of diversity and gender when it comes to ESG is so deeply under-researched from a business perspective. It's a lot more evolved from policy lens. A number of countries, particularly those who are impacted by the physical risks of climate change and and climate-related disaster at much higher rates, are looking at this in kind of a a gender-responsive climate action with that lens. And so business is kind of lagging behind in some ways where we know very widely that women are disproportionately impacted by climate change. They die at a much higher rate because of climate-related disaster. They are displaced and living in refugee communities at much higher rates than their male counterparts. And their livelihoods and work, particularly in the global south, where women are deeply dependent on agriculture as a source of work, are very much threatened by the physical impacts of crop yields and drought and flood and and all of those things that that climate change is, is only making worse. On the flip side of that, you know, we're at a really exciting time for business to have a real impact here. Because while women are disproportionately impacted, they are equally more so disproportionately impactful in their ability to contribute to climate action. And that sits across a number of different 
kind of spaces. So we know that boards, for example, so boards of directors for companies that have more women that have and retain reach their climate related goals and disclosures faster and more effectively that have you know, least diverse boards. We know that organizations that have more women in senior management are setting targets at much higher rates than less diverse organizations in their peer group. On the flip side of that, women entrepreneurs are are looking at climate-related solutions at, at much higher rates than their male counterparts, and that they weight their contribution and their impact on climate and community as a much higher priority than their return on investment, again, compared to their male counterparts. And thirdly, we also see this happening at the policy level. We know that governments that have more women in their cabinets and more women in ministerial positions are setting aside protected land and are ratifying climate treaties, both at the national and international and multilateral levels, at much higher rates than governments that have less women in, in their policymakers. And so when we see this happening and we see this very strong correlation between women's leadership across business, you know, entrepreneurship, and policy, and this really exciting opportunity, and not necessarily just opportunity, but risk and, and almost need, if I can say so, to, to transform rapidly towards a just, you know, a just future and, and a transition to, to a greener economy, it almost seems silly not to think about these two things as related. You know, we have many organizations, you know, including our own, have diversity and inclusion targets, but very few have kind of married those or or looked at those as they correlate to to ESG performance. And so as the increase of ESG reporting and and metrics and regulations come out, I'm really excited to see how organizations can start to tap into female leaders as ESG leaders and practitioners to really accelerate our our progress when it comes to sustainable investing and when it comes to, you know, our own wider ESG practices. Diversity, equity, and inclusion um, is um, a risk um, dimension for a reason. Because if you don't bring different perspectives to the table, you're running the risk of not seeing things or develop the wrong products or um, produce risk because um, a perspective that is missing that would help to eliminate the blind spot isn't on the table. So diversity, equity, and inclusion is really crucial for um, a healthy organization, for healthy businesses. And investors are pushing for uh, for this. Um, for example, uh, universal investors look at companies, they, they look at the board of directors, um, and they're really focusing on this because um, they fear the blind spots and they also fear Uh, that these companies will make decisions that are not as good as um, a, a very diverse and mixed organization with many different perspectives, not only in terms of gender and uh, origin of countries, but also with different academic uh, backgrounds and different um, age groups, which is also uh, a topic that is widely overseen. So for perspective, Uh, for example, the perspective of younger people is often missing. So with a more diverse investor base, there are different priorities and different metrics for success. And more and more, we're seeing ESG metrics being factored in for success. Over the past few years, we've seen that, you know, companies with higher ESG ratings have also financially performed better and have been more resilient than, you know, other companies without these practices in place. And that's something we're just increasingly seeing over the years. And with a more diverse and gender inclusive community, their priorities as well would align with this. And 
specific to diversity, that's quite a diversity, inclusion, and equity. It's all quite a big part of the S in ESG. And more and more investors are seeking this. And in societies that have historically been more gendered, with more women becoming part of the workforce, becoming part of the investor base, there's going to be increased manpower and increased social well-being, which I think would just have trickle effects overall for social development and go towards sustainable our sustainable goals as well. Finally, I know predictions can be tricky, but I'm going to put you all on the spot here. What's something each of you feels confident about that next generations of leaders can change that perhaps has been more of a struggle so far? I honestly, I think that given where we are with regards to regulations, ESG transparency will be the expected norm in the future, which is something that we're still getting to grips with now. And I think that this will be a crucial change that future ESG leaders won't have to grapple with. I think this generation is more aware than they've ever been before with increased access to information, social media. And at the same time, they've been feeling the negative impacts from everything, be it the increase in extreme weather events from climate change or how vulnerable our supply chains are with the recent crises we've seen with the pandemic, with the war in Ukraine. We've seen the perfect storm brewing and there's now a level of urgency which has never been there before. And I think this level of urgency, this fire is what is going to be a driving force of change. And people are making conscious choices and it's not a matter of doing the right thing anymore, but about mitigating risk and securing our futures. And I think this approach, this attitude hasn't been there before in past generations. And that's gonna be a real difference this time around. Many things come to my mind, but let's focus on maybe two that are striking me. Yeah, in the dialogue with with, uh, younger communities and activists, and also from my own experience. So I think there is a, um, a knowledge and uh, or an acknowledgement that you need international cooperation and you really need to tackle crises, not only on a, on a national state, but with international cooperation, which is good news for every international organization like the UN or the European Union. So there is a different mindset, a more international mindset, a mindset of collaboration and problem solving across borders. And uh, this is really this is really good news. And um, this is something that could help us tackling um, the problems of our future. And the other thing um, I find very fascinating also when it comes to yeah, getting people on board here at KPMG we often talk about value and purpose. So um, people are committed, uh, especially young uh, people are committed to really create impact in what they're doing. And this is really what drives them and what motivates them. And I I also think this is a very good, often overlooked uh, development. And um, that's why many organizations focus on purpose and um, also This is pushing the ESG agenda in many organizations across the globe because um, the people really want to create impact by what they're doing um, and they want to use the knowledge they gained to create something they can really stand behind. And this is very fascinating and I think this is a very good development. I feel as though the next generation of ESG leaders can and have been in many ways integrating ESG in a much more holistic way than perhaps ESG leaders have in the past. I think in light of the social movements that have been going on in parallel to the climate movement, it is unreasonable not to integrate the two. When we think about gender justice, when we think about racial justice, when we think about socioeconomic status and and class justice, it's 
incredibly important that we look at these in a holistic way. And I think young people are really starting to do that. And it needs to translate upwards to leadership, to business and policy leadership. But I think that that is something that our generation has and will continue to push for from an intersectional perspective, that we simply cannot have climate justice. We cannot have climate action, if not climate justice. And to be able to rebuild the kind of future that we need to, we have to include everyone, particularly those in marginalized communities, particularly those who have been oppressed in the past, and particularly those who have been most deeply impacted by these systems and this kind of system of, of capitalism and oppression and, and, you know, these issues that we face. We need to have those priorities, those stories, and that leadership at the very heart of this transition. And so I, I think that as we see young people ascending into leadership positions across business and policy and, and entrepreneurship, it will be a really exciting time to see how those priorities shift to, to really include everyone at this table. Thanks to all of you for speaking with me today. You've given our listeners a lot to think about, and it sounds like the opportunity to leverage the power and influence of the next generation for good has never been greater. Join us next time for more insights from ESG leaders and innovators. You can also find our latest insights covering a range of ESG topics by visiting home.kpmg forward slash ESG. Thanks for listening.